Good morning. The scripture reading is from Psalm 13, and if you are using the Bible provided for you, you can find the passage on page 453. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Volta, for reading that. Uh, we're reading a, a psalm of lament before each of our uh, sermons on this series from Lamentations. This is the, the last one, the Lamentations 5. So go over to page 690 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. Uh, this is Lamentations uh, 5. will be our, our uh, sermon text for today. It was uh, 2002, my, uh, my wife and I had just been married, and I was a youth pastor at a church, and uh, we'd gotten a new pastor not too awful long beforehand. Got married, came home, and I asked you know, the pastor how things were going, because I was gone for a couple weeks, because of the honeymoon and stuff, and uh, he said, you know, uh, things are going okay. There's a, you know, a little bit of a kind of a negative thing going on right now with some people, but, you know, we're, we're working, uh, working through it. And I said, okay, and this was while we were, you know, because he was the one who married us, and so he was, he was there with us. And then, um, so I get back from the honeymoon, and it, it blew up. The situation just absolutely blew up. Kind of took us all by surprise. Um. Long story short, there was a very, very painful uh, church split that we went through. I've told part of this story before, I know, but uh, we got home. My wife, she couldn't work uh, legally at the time because she didn't have a green card yet, and so uh, she couldn't earn any income, and so it was up to me on my youth pastor's salary to bring home the bacon, so to speak. And uh, I came back from one of these long meetings where I looked like I, this, was, this was not going to work out. And so I came back, I remember, and Nook asked me, she goes, well, how did the meeting go? And I, I told her, I said, well, a few weeks ago, remember those vows we took? And she's like, yeah. I said, you remember we said for richer or for poorer? She said, yeah. I said, we're not richer. <laughs> okay. Um, lost my job. Um, and, you know, ended up just trying to do any type of uh, job I could take to, to get, you know, the bills paid. We lived off of our wedding gifts. Uh, we had bought a, uh, I had bought a, uh, like a, you know, furniture, some furniture for the house. And we, uh, 
We returned that, and it was one of the most painful times that I can remember. Uh, there was just, just a lot of pain. If you've ever been through something like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I hope you never have to go through something like that. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, because that whole scenario in the midst of it was, I just was begging for it to be over. And in try, upside down, my whole life, I felt like everything was upside down. We just were trying to figure everything out. It was not a fun experience. But, you know, 20-some years later, when I look back on it, I, uh, I see that God really taught me a lot. I think it really helped uh, Anouk and I in our first moments, literally, of marriage uh, to walk through something like that together. It really forged a lot. I mean, I, I knew I loved her, but the way she responded to that situation, completely trusting in God, uh, really forged a deep respect that I have for my wife even to this day uh, because of how she handles you know, pressure and things like that. And so uh, as I look at that, I wouldn't have wanted to go through it. I wouldn't have dialed that up. But it happened, and God used it for good. And I look back on it, and it was something that re- it was really good. That's how Lamentations is. Lamentations is not a fun book to read, Okay. You read through it, there's some moments where if you're reading it, and it's poetry, I mean, you get to that in a second, but if you're reading through that and you think about this and you you don't just read the words on the page and you actually start thinking what's behind and underneath that, the situations that caused the author to write these things, boy, it starts messing with you. And this is hard things to read. We've talked to last week, we talked about compassionate people, compassionate ladies, mothers, whose situation was so dire that cannibalism was on the table. I mean, this is hard reading here. In, in Leviticus, excuse me, Lamentations 5, we have some of the same things here. We have some things that talks about things that happen to these women here. And it is just hard to read right here. Yet, if we study it and we know for what it's for, we can see that it is actually God uses this for good. So if by way of uh, of review, remember that we're now in the last poem. This is a book that's made up of five poems. The first first four poems were acrostics, and that meant that the the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but that was the first letter of verse 1. All the way down, there's 22 letters. And so in in chapters 1, in chapters 2, in chapter 4, there's 22 verses. And so it just goes through the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3, there's 66 verses. And so they use three verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet there. But we see themes in this. In chapter 1, we see that there's this acknowledgement of sin, and yet there's hope. True to form with lament, there's always this idea of hope, and hope that God is right in what he's doing here. Chapter 2 talks about the terrible effects of sin, and yet there's hope as says pray to God. There's hope there. There's In chapter 3, there's a very personal experience that's given. It goes from, remember, the, the national view to zeroes in. In chapter 3, this third poem is a personal account of this most 
many scholars believe this to be Jeremiah. We don't know 100% for sure on that, but most scholarship says that Jeremiah is probably the one that does this. And so Jeremiah is the one that's given, if they are right, if scholarship is right on this, that they are, that Jeremiah is given his personal experience with that. And yet there's a hope there of God's covenantal love. In chapter four, remember some of the things that chapter four talked about last week of answer the question, how did we even get here? How did this happen? And yet there's hope that God's justice is equitable and complete. And in chapter 5, we have the same thing here, except there's no acrostic. It's more chaotic. There's 22 letters or 22, uh, excuse me, verses here, but it's not following the same idea. There is some uh, 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 use of the, the last letter of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet there, but it really is more chaotic. And some of the ways I, I think the reason why that the person who compiled this and, and who God used to give us this book was because there really is no neat ending. And we're going to see that. There's really no neat ending to this book. And that's by design. And what we really have in this chapter, where we're going to unpack for the next few minutes here, is really two urgent pleas, two desperate requests that are given to the God of heaven. And so that's what we're going to look at here in chapter 5 of Lamentations. But let me pause, ask God's blessing as uh, we begin to unpack this in a more detailed way. Let me pray. Father, whenever we open your word, we want to depend on you for your spirit to illuminate our hearts, God. Illuminate our minds. Lord, may we see what you have for us here. And as I have the wonderful privilege to stand in front of my brothers and sisters and friends here, Lord, I just pray, God, I pray that I would be able to communicate in a way that is led by your spirit, God. And it is accurate to the text, and it's helpful for all those who are listening, first and foremost, my own soul. So thank you. Thank you for what you're doing here with this book, and Lord, I pray that I would uh, would honor you in, in how I speak about this. Remove distractions, we pray, and we just pray that we'd be able to give full attention to your word here. In Christ's name I do pray. Amen. So I said that there's two urgent pleas or two desperate requests, if you will, that is given here in chapter 5. And the first is this, is like, remember us. We see this in verse 1. It says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. I'm going to continue to read verse 2. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers and our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless, and mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink and the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We have been given no rest. We have been given the hand to, we, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the uh, sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate and the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen uh, from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. 
For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. By, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. There is a lot of emotion packed in those 22 verses, is there not? And here he begins with that first cry of, remember us. Now, one of the things I want to I mention about this prayer is that, first of all, is that this idea of when we pray to God, it's really based on some assumptions. And the, the first assumption is, is that, that there's an assumption that God is listening. If you're praying to God, there's an assumption that God is listening to you and can hear you. And the, the second uh, the, uh, assumption is, is that God cares. If you're talking to God, first of all, we're assuming, okay, he's listening, he cares. And then the third assumption is that he can actually do something about it. And this is what we have underneath this cry, this desperate prayer by this person who is capturing the nation's response to what was going on here. Because remember, from, by way of review, this is the response to when uh, uh, Babylon came in and overthrew uh, the city of Jerusalem. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to do this. And so overthrow the city of Jerusalem, the temple's destroyed. This is a terrible event, 586 B.C. And this is the response to this. This is what Jeremiah had prophesied in his book, Jeremiah. He had talked about this and he had warned about this. For 23 years, we talked about how he just preached and preached and preached and warned people over four different kings and said, please turn back. And they did not. And yet here at the end of this, in the midst of judgment, we have someone that's saying, remember us. They believed that God was still listening. They believed that he cared. And he believed that he could do something. You see, that's the place where we need to be. No matter how bad circumstances get, we must never forget the fact that God is listening. And we can go to him in prayer. How many times, though, is prayer a second or third uh, uh, on the priority list? One of the things that I, I've shared this document with you before is like every year or so, I, I give out a document with the teens of our church and say, these are some of the things that we want every teenager to know before they graduate high school here. And one of them is that prayer is a first option priority, that we pray first. And this is what this person is doing here. He's modeling this for us, is that even in the midst of terrible circumstances, instead of trying to figure things out himself, because God had brought him to a place where he realized he just couldn't. But God's listening still. God cares and that God is able to do something about it. So that's what's underneath this. But this is an interesting prayer when it says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. One of the things we know about God is that he's all-powerful, right? Omnipotent, okay? We know he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? And then he's omniscient, right? What does omniscient mean? All-knowing. So if someone's praying to God who is all-knowing, why is he saying, remember? You ever consider that? Why is he saying this? Why is he saying, okay, remember this guy to the one who would never forget anything? Who's the one who never has a senior moment, okay? The one who never has said, where did I put my phone and having to use your Apple Watch to find it, okay? Or where are my keys? God never has these moments, 
Because he's God. So why is this person praying here saying, remember, oh God? Here's the reason why. Because whenever it's, in the, in the Old Testament particularly, whenever it's directed to God, it's a call to action. It's a call to action. He's saying, do something about this. He's saying that, that this is something that, that only you can do. Uh, see this situation, God. You're the only one that can act here. We, we have no power in this situation. Remember, God. And remember, also in chapter 3, he talks about remembering God's covenantal love. And see, this is language that God actually uses about himself. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Moreover, God speaking, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. You see, this is God using language about himself. Not that he forgot about the covenant. He's saying, I'm going to enact. I'm going to put some action to my covenant here. So this is what this person's writing about. He says, remember, God, act as only you can do here. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in such a situation where you just do not know that there's no other path ahead and you say, God, only you can lead us here. Only God, you have the wisdom here. If you're struggling to think of a situation like that right now, I would say you've probably been in them more than you think you have. It's just our first response isn't to say, remember God. We go put pencil to paper and we start getting our plans worked out and we start getting it all worked out and I'm preaching sermons that I need to hear as I've always said I've told you this before if there's a problem in my life I my, my natural reaction is okay we got to work hard and solve this problem and then if that doesn't work then you know what you do you work harder and solve the problem, okay, right? And if that doesn't work, I'm a slow learner, work harder. Than, and then finally, it's like, you know, maybe I should pray about this, right? You see, here, this is like, he's saying, remember, God. Remember your covenant. Remember your covenant. Remember this situation. Only you can act here. Remember so this prayer of remember us is based on some assumptions here that God even is listening, that God cares, that he can do something about it. It's a plea to God to say act as only you can act here. But then this prayer also does, and I read through it, is it acknowledges, again, sin's crushing effects. And this is a theme throughout the book. And we see this in every chapter. We see the highlight of sin here and how terrible it is. Particularly in chapter 2 we see that, but we really see that as a theme in the whole book here of how bad sin is and it's almost like we have to be really graphic here according to this in, in chapter 5 here to, to see really how bad sin is because we would not believe it we would not believe how bad sin really is if unless we saw the effects of it and we've talked about this in this series we talked about the cost of it we've talked about how many ways that this book here has just highlighted for us how bad sin really is but let me just make a couple no, no, notations here just to be faithful to the text here you know all are affected here verse 3 mothers are mentioned verse 7 fathers are mentioned uh, women old and younger verse 11 nobility verse Verse 12, elders, verse 12, men, old and younger, verses 13 to 14. No one's left out here. I mean, all are affected by this. And we have to realize that. 
We have to take this seriously. So prayer, this prayer acknowledges that sin has some crushing effects. And so when it says, remember us, O Lord, he's saying, remember the situation we're in. We are reaping the whirlwind here, and we need you to act. We need you to step in for us because we have no hope apart from you. That's what this prayer is about. There's also some irony in here about sin. In verses 2 and 3, you see, there's just these people that are mentioned here. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, homes of foreigners. We become orphan followers. Some others are like widows here. Interesting thing about this is that one of the things that Israel is rebuked for is that they were supposed to care for the foreigner. They were supposed to care for the sojourner. They were supposed to care for the widows and the orphans, and they did not. And so in God's judgment, they became the very people whom they were supposed to care for, and they ignored. There's some irony here. Instead of prosperity and freedom, we see that they were supposed to have, that it was promised, Simbra poverty and slavery, verses 4 and 8. This poverty talks about we have to pay for the water we drink, wood that must be bought. In their, in their, in their prosperous years, they had all these things. And, and they, they, these were just things that were free to society. You know, water, you didn't have to pay for it because it was free. But but then the oppression, they had to pay for even the basic necessities of life. And slavery instead of freedom. Instead of sin being a private choice, sin impacts generations. Verse 7, there's an irony of this. Of, of we think about this is only going to affect me, but yet it impacts so many other people. We've talked about that before in this series. Instead of happiness, sin brings misery. Verses 15 through 17, we see this. Instead of being manageable, sin is only satisfied with complete destruction. Verses 11 through 14, you just see this of how that this is, instead of saying, okay, I can, I can manage this or, or it's not that big of a deal, it is like a cancer that grows and grows and grows and is not satisfied until death happens. That's what sin is. And yet, we don't take it seriously. This is what this remember prayer is about. Remember the situation. We are reaping this, and God, you need to be a God. I believe that you're a God who's listening. I believe it is God who cares. I believe you're a God who can do something about this. Remember us. The more I think about it, and the more I study this, the more I think this should be a prayer that should be on our lips far more often than it actually is. But we get comfortable day-to-day life, and, and things seem to be going well, and we're not really concerned about all these effects that sin has in our lives. But I just have to tell you, one of the things about Lamentations is, is it says, please, please be serious about sin in your life. The ironies of sin. So the prayer, remember us, is a plea to God to act because he is the only one who can actually help even though we often try to figure it out ourselves. Do something, verse 1, is basically what is said here. And then verse 20, when it says, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? He's pleading to him, saying, please continue to remember us. This is really a dependence on God, a dependence that causes us to cry out, remember us. So that's urgent plea number one. There's another plea, though, that is given in this text, and that is restore us. Okay, restore us. And so we have the first one is, is uh, um, you'll remember us. The second one is to restore us. 
And what this prayer does, and we see this in verse 21, but what this prayer does is it leans on things. It leans on God's eternal rule. Look with me in verse 19. But you, O Lord, here's a turning point in the chapter, but you, O Lord, reign forever. So he spent the first half just seeing how bad the situation is, how bad the circumstances are. But then he says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. This is talking about God's eternal rule here. He reigns forever. There are no term limits to God's reign. He continues to reign forever and ever. And think about this. The God of Abraham, who was on the throne then, the God who was on the throne with Job, the God who was on the throne with Adam and Eve, the God who is on the throne today is the same God. His reign is forever. It's a wonderful thing to think about. And that's what this prayer restore us is leaning on us saying, okay, you are the God who is forever. And so if I'm going to say for you to restore me, I have to be asking someone who can actually do something about that and who's someone who has a track record who's done that and God checks every box. His reign is eternal. It leans on his eternal rule, uh, his eternal rule. But not only that, the prayer reveals a universal need here. Your throne endures to all generations. Now, this is poetry. And remember, poetry is designed for us to be felt. Okay, that's one of the reasons. It's, it's, it's while communicating truth to our minds, it's also designed to address the emotions. That's what poetry does. And so here we have this parallel, this idea in verse 19 of you reign forever, your throne endures to all generations. And so it talks about this eternality, but also a universal application as well. Not just eternal, but universal. To all generations. I put on Facebook recently because uh, I, was, I was reading through some, some history of our church, um, as I love to do. And, uh, you know, there's a cool story um, about when the church burned and then when they rebuilt it. This is 1891. Um, just, you know, just some cool stories about what God has done here. But then um, I, I was talking with, with Levon, who uh, Levon's family, uh, Levon is not the oldest person in our church. I want to make sure that that's clear. Okay. But she is the longest person an attendance member of our church. Okay, so there's that. So her family has been part of our family for, uh, our church family for many years. I was, I was reflecting on this. Um, it was in 1919 that Levon's grandfather started coming to this church. 1919. The family moved here. Um, and there's some funny stories about how they got all the livestock and things there, some by rail, some by walking, you know, herding sheep and stuff like that. Some pretty funny stories there, and it's really cool to see. The Evenson family is, uh, Levon's family has been here for six generations. And the reason why I bring that up is it's the same God, the same mercy, the same love, and the same faithfulness that we've all experienced. But when you kind of, for, by illustration, and I did not ask LaVon for this because she probably would not want me to talk about her this much, but um, it's easier to ask for forgiveness and permission. Um, so God was faithful to LaVon's grandfather in 1919. And so he is faithful to LaVon's great-grandson, Emmett, in 2023. Okay? 
The same God who restored David from his adultery and murderous plans, he can restore you. See, this is why this is important. This is why I'm bringing this up is because of all the things when we trace the ark. Sometimes if we think about God's faithfulness to generation to generation, we can think about it as like kind of like this, this theoretical notion the Bible teaches. But the reason why I'm bringing a family up here is we have a family in our church that's been part of this for six generations. And God's faithfulness has been to every generation and will continue on. So the same God who restored David from his murderous and adulterous plans is the same God who can restore you. The same God who restored Jonah when he ran away from God can bring you back. The same God who restored Peter after his denials can put you on solid ground today, spiritual solid ground today. The same God who restored Martha after all of her priorities got mixed up can reorient your life today. Why? Because God's faithfulness is to all generations, not just a time and place that we read about in the scriptures. Sometimes it's easy to look at those stories in the Bible and say, okay, maybe God acted a little bit differently with them. Maybe God acted in in an unusual way. And there's some truth to that because God did act in some certain ways in certain places. But it was always his character is always the same. His faithfulness is the same to all generations. His throne endures to all generations. This is why Psalm 102.27 says, you are the same in your years have no end. And I find encouragement in that. So that's why I can cry out to God, restore me. Because he has a track record of restoring generation after generation after generation. Restore me. It's a beautiful prayer. This is why we cry out. It's a universal need. But really what this does is it also highlights a difference. A difference between regret and repentance. Because we see repentance in this book here. Plenty of people regret their decisions simply because they don't like the consequences. But here, when we say restore us to yourself, this is a repentant prayer. This is not someone who is just saying, we just don't want the bad circumstances anymore. How do I know that? Because the prayer is not restore the glory to our city, restore the glory to the temple, restore our prosperity. That's not what the prayer is. The prayer here is restore us where? To yourself. It's the the relationship with God that is most important above all else. That is the prayer of a repentant person instead of just someone who has regret because of the circumstances. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is a difference. People can be very sorry because of the situation they find themselves in. Because of their, their, their choices have led to very unfortunate circumstances. And they just don't like that. So they're very sorry because of the situation that they find themselves in. But there's really not true repentance about what led them into that. Hear this, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Verse 21 is the prayer of someone who says, I repent of my sin. And I need you to restore me to yourself. 
Repentance is a clear acknowledgement of sin. We see that in verse 7, our fathers have sinned and are no more. We bear their iniquities. We see it in verse 16. It says, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. There's a clear acknowledgement of sin. And every poem, by the way, in this book has a clear acknowledgement of sin. In verse 1, verse 18, 2, verse 14, three, chapter, uh, chapter 3, tw- uh, 42, and then 4, 13. In every poem, and the ones I just gave you in five, in every one, there's a clear acknowledgement of sin, and it's a beautiful story of repentance. So embracing God as our greatest good and his glory must be our highest aim. That's what restore us to yourself is. Embracing God as our greatest good and his glory as our highest aim, that is captured in restore us to yourself, O God. If you have everything except God, if you have everything else except God, you're actually nothing. You actually have nothing. Uh, there's an author that wrote about this and, and, um, in one of the books uh, that he wrote. He, t- he, was, he was writing about all the different things. He says, if you could have heaven and all the glories of heaven, you could have the streets of gold, you could have the food without the, the calories, you could have you know, all the, the, the wonderful weather, you could have all the things, that when you think of what heaven, the perfection of heaven would be like, if you could have all of that, you know, uh, you, everything is there, except God isn't there, would you be satisfied with that? That's the question here. But here it says, restore us to yourself. What this person who wrote this many years ago for our benefit and for our learning is saying here is he's saying, if you have everything but God, you actually have nothing. Restore us to yourself. Mere regret is self-pity and self-centered, but yet lament prayers as that we have here are rooted in brokenness over sin and looks to God for hope and help. And so here we have that God-focused lament, because these are all about what these are, is lament. God-focused lament, it catapults us past the desire for heartbreak to end, and it lands us in the hope of God's restoration. It, it, It moves us beyond just saying, I want the circumstances to get better, or I don't like the circumstance I'm in. What what lament does is it pushes us way past that into the hope of that I could be restored to God. I can have a relationship with him. And we can have peace together. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at that with one of our Christmas carols that we're going to look at. Is that there's going to be peace with God that's possible. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. So the, the application here is do we repent or we just have regrets? Do we plead to God? Um, do our pleas to God, are they centered on escaping bad circumstances or do we earnestly desire God's presence? So these are the two, these are the two earnest pleas here that we see in this text is remember us, call to action, do something, restore us to yourself that only you can do. Please do this. But then it just ends in verse 22. I mean, you would think 21 would be the better way to end the, the chapter. I mean, you look at it, you think that would just be a great restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored, renew our days as of old, period, end, we're done, close the book, yes, positive note. But he's got to put 22 in there. Why? 
Well, you say, well, Jeremy, you know, there's 22 letters and all this stuff. He had to, no, that's not why. Why did he do this? Because there's an uncertain ending here. And the question comes is, is like, why does he do this? Why does it come up here? Remember, I told you this, poetry is meant to be felt. That's, that's really at play here. That is crucial to understanding this text here. Poetry awakens the emotions while communicating truth and ideas. So that's why verse 22, it says, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Because that is a real feeling when we are dealing with our sin, there's a fear there. There's a fear that says, have I gone too far? God, are you really going to keep your promise here? This is a raw ending here that is meant to communicate right to our emotions as we're dealing with this. And the reason why is because a life of faith is full of uncertain moments. I, I used to think that, that when I would think about what I'd hear about these stories of, of great Christian people who lived before me, you know, Charles Spurgeon or Amy Carmichael or, or you know, the, the, uh, uh, George Mueller and all these stories. I used to read about these people and just think, uh, man, they just, man, they just had rock-solid faith, and that would just be awesome to have that. And they, they never doubted God. But, you know, the more I read about these guys— and these ladies, the more I realized they all had moments of intense doubt and uncertainty. All of them. Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in England, 19th century. His nickname is the Prince of Preachers. He's, he's just known for his, his preaching abilities, I mean, huge church revival all across London. I mean, just amazing stories to read about here. There were times, there were times where uh, the deacons of the church were afraid for his life because he was so depressed. They literally put him on suicide watch. Moments of doubt, intense doubt. Martin Luther, Reformation. The guy nails 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, wants a discussion, stands for, uh, you know, truth. I mean, I mean, you know, when, when, when a papal bull came down, those threatening to excommunicate him or even death, he publicly burns it. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't fear anything. This is a guy, if you read any of the things that he wrote about, he was very, very clear with what he said. Often went a little too far. Sometimes you're like, Martin, come on, Marty. <laughs> Tone it down a little bit here. You know? But he was very bold. Yet, you read Katie's biography, his wife's biography. You read about her, and she tells stories of how she had a locksmith come in and take the door off of his study because he would seclude himself for so long in the depression. She hired a locksmith and said, nope, door's coming off. One time, Katie tells a story where she got on, put black uh, uh, clothes, morning clothes on, put a stool in the, in the center of the room and sat on the stool. Didn't say anything. Martin walks by and says, what's going on? She says, it's terrible. It's just absolutely terrible. He's dead. Martin says, who? Who's dead? She says, God. God is dead. Martin says, what are you talking about? That's blasphemous. You know, she goes, the way you've been acting, I assumed that he had died, and I went to join the morning. 
these guys all had moments of doubt. That's why 22 is there. Right there. Who says the Bible's not personal? Who says the Bible doesn't speak to you right where you're at? You see, this is what's happening here, is that the life of faith is full of uncertain moments. Sometimes we just don't feel the peace of salvation. And that this is raw emotion that's happening here. I, I love when Tim Keller tells a story about how he moved to New York City. And he talks about that they were starting this church in New York City. This was years ago. And, of course, everyone told him that it was a fool's errand and that he shouldn't do this. And so he and his, his wife and his two kids that were younger at the time, they moved to New York City and they're starting this church here. And people would ask him, he tells a story years later, people would ask him all the time, he's like, well, what led you to that move? Did you just have this overwhelming peace of God that this is what you're supposed to do? I love what Keller said. He says, no, I didn't have peace. I was scared out of my mind. He goes, I believe that's what God wanted me to do. And I had to cling to that promise. But I was scared. See, that's why this verse is here. It's to remind us that, yes, there are moments that a life of faith is full of uncertain moments. But again, you wish that there was something that we could end the story. But yes, we can know the rest of the story here. There is a way to know the end of the story here. A lot of it is going back to chapter 3 and verse 21 where it talks about, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy has never come to an end. They are new every morning. Grace your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So a lot of understanding what happens after uh, chapter 5, verse 22 goes back. We need to go back to chapter 3, verse 21 and following. But more than that, the Bible has a consistent message that answers this question. Unless you've utterly rejected me, Luke chapter 15. There's a story in Luke chapter 15 about a man who had two sons. The one son went to his father, the younger, and says, I want you to give me my inheritance now. Give it to me now. Essentially, he was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. You are more valued to me dead than you are alive, is what he's saying there. Shockingly, the father gives him the inheritance and the son goes off and he wastes, his, uh, he wastes his inheritance. He comes back. One day he comes back to himself. He comes back and the rest of the story is, is that he's waiting for his dad. He's rehearsed the speech for his dad. They say, I, I've sinned. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. But it says, when the father saw his son a great way off, he ran, he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And he told everyone else, he says, this my son is back. He's alive. He was once was lost. He is found. He was dead. He's alive. He says, he says kill the fatted calf. We're having a party. My son is back. We want to know the answer that comes after 22. It's Luke 15. It's Luke 15. I love Philip Yancey's book, amazing, What's So Amazing About Grace. He says this, and he gives a version of that story. I'm going to read part of it to you. In Yancey's version, he retells it as a young woman who leaves behind what she sees as her overly restrictive parents to explore freedom. She He sets the... The scenario that she grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, and, and she travels down to Detroit. 
She eventually realizes the depravity and emptiness of her new life, and so she re resolves to return home. Yancey gets into a lot more details. I won't get into it, but it does paint the picture very well of the life that she found in Detroit. She calls home three times. Three times there's no answer. On the final call, she leaves a voicemail. Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight. Midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to get from Detroit to Traverse City with all the stops in between. And soon after departure, she begins to wonder if she's made a mistake. What if her parents were out of town and didn't get the message? As she worried about whether her parents received the message, she rehearsed the speech, just in case. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, and her throat tightens even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone for years. The Bible finally, the, the Bible, the bus finally arrives at the terminal in Traverse City. The driver announced the bus would be there for 15 minutes before leaving for the next stop. Yancey writes, 15 minutes to decide her life. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, <laughs> bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great uncles and un uh, great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculously looking party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd, of the well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I am sorry, I know. And he interrupts. He says, hush, child, you're late for the party. <laughs> That's the story. That's the rest of the story of Lamentations. Right there. That... If we cry out to God, restore us to yourself, he will restore you. Okay? He will restore you. So cry out to God, restore me to yourself. Know the difference between regret and repentance. Rest in the hope of God's covenant to love. And remember, as we said a few weeks ago, only the repentant have no need to fear God. So we talked about two, two pleas today. We talked about the plea of remember, a call to action, and then to restore us to, to God himself.